0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to the podcast. It is episode 458. It's September 28th, 2022. Joining me again today is Damon Baker. He was recently my guest in episode 454. You can find that um, if you want to scroll down in the podcast feed or go to leanblog.org slash um, 454. Today is a, a continuation of the discussion. I don't think you have to have heard the first part for this part um, to, to make sense. We're going to take a deeper dive into um, some of the work that he does related to lean and private equity. And we're going to hear about something called the Opportunity Works Initiative, which is a, a really interesting approach to you know, helping you know, share some of the success That comes from a a growing and successful company with all of the employees so if you want to learn more about damon and find links to him and his work you can look in the show notes for this episode or go to leanblog.org slash four five eight well hi everybody welcome back to the podcast and i'm also welcoming back uh, damon baker he was a guest Recently, episode 454, back on um, August 17th, he is, again, the founder and CEO of the firm Lean Focus, and he's also a private equity partner at Coltala Holdings. Uh, I I would encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. It was a great discussion. Uh, You can find that at leanblog.org slash 454 or scroll, I guess it would be down in your podcast feed wherever you're listening to this. Again, look for episode 4.54. 4.54. And uh, Damon's uh, website and the Lean Focus website, again, is leanfocus.com. So, Damon, thank you uh, for coming back on for a little extra bonus conversation. How are you? I'm doing well, Mark. Thanks for having me. And I
1: will try not to wear out my welcome. like doing <laughs> this too many times in a row for you. So, appreciate the opportunity.
0: Yeah, not not at all. Um, you know, we, we had so much to talk about last time. We didn't get to a couple of uh, topics. That I wanted to ask you about that's not your fault. We had great discussion, but you know, we're gonna to focus today on uh, private equity and something called the ownership works initiative. So those are the things we're gonna cover here. Uh Damon's really you know well positioned to um kind of you know help educate us about this and, and connections to lean. And so you know, maybe first off, Damon, I, I'm guessing, or you know, uh, there may very well be a lot of people in the audience have maybe heard the phrase private equity but don't really understand what that means as an ownership model. So if if you wouldn't mind, you know, give us a little bit of, you know, private equity 101.
1: Sure. So, you know, the differentiating model between a publicly held corporation uh and a privately held corporation and a private equity held corporation. I'll try to spell out the difference. So I think we're probably all most familiar with how a public corporation works. Uh, you and I can go to Fidelity and we can make an investment into our individual stock accounts, or perhaps we have as part of a 401k or an IRA, we invest in these public companies like Apple and, and Google and others. And that one's pretty straightforward. Uh, if you if if you own a lot of stock in those corporations, like a Warren Buffett, then you have a material vote in the uh, the say and strategy of of the company, and and in some point you can own so much of the company that you can be an activist investor and you can actually shape who's on the board and again the makeup of the company and those kinds of things. So that's kind of publicly held corporation, and then the privately held. Uh, founder-led business, uh, Mark's one, I'm one, you know, some, some equity uh, arrangement, either it's you know, 100% owned by the founder or some equity allocation amongst the individual, usually our employees or or advisors or something like that. And then there's private equity. So private equity is, is uh, a situation. So kind of really just kind of two types of private equity. At the beginning. So there's a private equity firm that has a fund, which means that they uh, solicit investment monies from their network, which are usually high net worth individuals that uh, are interested in investing in investment opportunities that maybe aren't available to the public. And they basically say, uh, for this particular fund that we're raising, here's the amount of, of, of funds we need. In order to secure the investment to acquire the businesses that we'd like to acquire and uh, the monies in that fund will be tied up for a period of time which is predetermined by the fund and it could be anywhere between three to seven years which is pretty typical where those funds then exit and then a new fund uh, is initiated so that's one type of, of private equity then the other type of private equity is which is the the type that i'm affiliated with as well is we don't raise a fund. Each acquisition is a standalone investment that we have to fund the uh, funds for separately. And and usually the way these investments are funded is through debt and equity, right? So they reach out to, to, again, high net worth individuals or your friends and family, your network, whomever, and we need to raise a certain amount of the equity for the purchase of the company. And then the remainder of the investment to buy the company is, is funded through debt. And there could be different types of debt, um, subordinated debt and mezzanine debt and so on and so forth. But so usually a combination in debt and equity is what's used to fund an acquisition in private equity. And, you know, going back to, the old uh, 1980s, Drexel Burnham and Lambert, uh, bonds, you know, that kind of stuff. There was, and even Danaher, where I came from, uh, was, was uh, a leveraged acquisition.
0: Yeah. Uh, There there was the term leveraged buyout. Yeah, exactly. Common, right?
1: Yeah. So they're using uh, debt to fund the, to acquisition of these business, businesses, oftentimes um, aggressively (laughs) with, without the, the willing participation in the people who are, um, you know, owning the company at the moment. So that's, that's not
0: becomes like a hostile takeover.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's not, not what we do. And and not what most private equity does either. They look for willing, uh, participants in the sale process. Right. So, so then, then, you know, the two types, there's a fund and then there's individual investment that can, you can hold these companies as long as you want, but private equity generally doesn't make money unless they exit these acquisitions at some point in the future. And hopefully when they exit them, they exit them at a higher valuation or or multiples of EBITDA is the terminology that's used in private equity, uh, higher than what they acquired the business for. So you may acquire a business at 3x earnings and then turn around seven years from now and sell it at 10x earnings and you just made you know a return on your investment. So and then there's all flavors of size of private equity. So on the high end you've got the KKRs and the Blackstones uh, of the world. And then as you move down the, the spectrum in what we would call like the lower middle market would probably be the opposite end of the spectrum where the Earnings of the businesses there would probably be in the five to twenty million of of EBITDA range, whereas a KKR or a Blackstone would buy companies that have hundreds of millions of dollars of EBITDA uh, as part of person. They're going to be competing with the likes of publicly traded corporations for those acquisitions as well, right? And, And usually they're they're not very secret when they become for sale. Uh, they usually go out to an auction type of process where they're using an investment banking firm like Goldman Sachs or or others to, to broker the sale of the business. Whereas usually on the lower middle market side, a lot of the times you can get really good deals by just your network and people that you know who are ready to sell at this point in their Their journey. And uh, those those are called off-market acquisitions, which is a a lot of what we've done at Kotala pretty successfully.
0: Mm -hmm. So to that first type of firm that you talk about where they have a certain window and the fund is done, does that force the private equity company to sell the companies they're holding at the end of that timeframe?
1: Yeah, so they exit those those uh, those uh, companies at that, that fund. So there's this uh, productive tension that exists like day one, you're already thinking about the things you need to do to sell the business day one because you know there's a predetermined time horizon that you need to exit the ownership of these, these businesses. So the value creation roadmap or the lean roadmap, whatever terminology you want to use, uh, needs to be very precise and surgical about what levers you need to focus on and maybe less about the cultural aspects and the whole in- integrated business system approach and more about how do we just move the needle on this particular investment? So there's a different appetite for a lean business system in the private equity world than there is a, a publicly traded corporation that has a longer horizon.
0: And when, when you talk about a value creation model, or- that second type of firm, including Coltala Holdings, it sounds like you don't have an arbitrary time frame. You can hold, you can improve the company, create value, hold it as long as it makes sense to hold instead of having kind of an arbitrary ticking clock. Is that fair? That, yeah, that,
1: that's, it's it's very accurate. Um, the one thing you are running up against is the investors at some point want to get paid and, And typically in these situations, there isn't any sort of uh, earnings that are distributed to the investors during the holding period. So your money is tied up for whatever period of time that you own the business. So if you hold this thing for 10 years and it's basically like you have your investment tied up for 10 years. So you you may get antsy at some point to say, well, guys, you know, I don't have forever on the planet. I'd like to (laughs) like to. Get some sort of return on my money, so it's not infinite and it's not you know, defined by the arbitrary, uh, you know, time horizons of a of fund per se. But yeah, you know, I'd say pretty typical. Like anything beyond seven years is like that's a long time to own a business in the private equity world.
0: So it sounds like you know there, there's different dynamics where. Well, first let, let me ground this and talk about. You know, principles of the Toyota way, going back to Jeff Liker's book, principle one, and I think it's probably first in that list list for a reason, talks about making decisions with a long-term focus. Now, what what do we mean by long-term? That could mean different things to different people. Making business decisions for the long-term, even at the expense of the short-term. So public companies often have this dynamic of we got to hit the quarter's numbers and there's criticism of, boy, there's short-term focus There's all kinds of dumb things a public company can do to make the numbers look good now that might damage things for the future. Private equity, it seems like the best of that might be a mid or long term focus. Um, How how would you compare some of those pressures? Is it that, How you know, what's your reaction to that comparison?
1: Yeah, I I think the intensity level in private equity is... Uh, far greater in terms of what have you done for me lately type of discussion in terms of the results. And there's a natural selection process in terms of prioritization that, that you automatically say no to things that don't fit the value creation roadmap by design, which is good because you have a, you you don't have a lot of those conversations that you might have in a company that's publicly traded company that you find yourself distracted with initiatives that are all well-intended, but don't move the needle in a short Mm -hmm. amount. So, so I like that aspect of it. Um, But there's, there's trade-offs to everything. It's like, if you're so focused on the outcomes, then maybe you miss the importance on, on people and culture and the sustainability of, the organization at exit, when you go to sell this business and um, your impact on society and your impact in the community, all those things are noble pursuits and and things that you know any publicly traded company right now is being pressured to do by investors and shareholders. Whereas in the private equity world, there's less of a appetite for and less of a pull for because of just how the what the investor's expectations are. It's different. I want to get my money out quick and, and make a return. And, and, but there, however, and it kind of goes in the ownership works topic that we'll talk about later is there is a rising sort of movement in private equity where it's mission over margin, if you will. And, and there's also another term coined called conscious capitalism. So, you know, let's not just try to ring as much value out of each one of these acquisitions as possible to bleed them dry and you know keep this thing together with duct tape long enough to sell it and make money and then have it all fall apart when we run to the bank. Uh, I think people have wisened up to that, especially the buyers. Like they're more they're they're more uh, adept at spotting when that's gone on and and I think there's less of an opportunity in the private equity space as there was 10 or 15 years ago to, to get value creation just out of funny math, you know, uh, financial arbitrage, putting debt on the company, doing short-term sort of stuff, which is going to hurt the business long-term. And I think there's the, the buyers are more intelligent to spot that kind of stuff. So it is naturally forced private equity to care more about things now than they have in the past to make it more sustainable, yeah. including
0: Kotala Holdings, where, I, where I'm a part of.
1: And when, when you say the
0: buyers, do you mean the investors in the funds that were the investors in the acquisitions?
1: Um, no, I mean the the next owner of the business.
0: Oh, after yeah. private equity.
1: Yeah, exactly. So whoever, it, it could equity. be another private equity firm that buys it from, from the previous private equity firm or it could be a publicly traded company uh, or somebody could get funds together and take the whole thing gotcha. private and not have
0: so. Yeah, because on that exit, Okay. So what I hear you saying, this makes sense. People, the, the the next buyer of the company is trying to make sure they're not buying something that's a shell of its former self. Like, you know, there's, again, I think this is that, that first model that you were describing of um, private equity coming in, like, you know, some of the major retailers, like, you know, I think Toys R Us was an example of like, you know, maybe it was a business that was facing pressure from Amazon and online purchases, but my layman's Reading of, you know, some business press articles is that they were acquired by private equity, loaded up with debt, lots of money being extracted, yeah. and then it kind of collapses and people blame private equity. But it sounds like we we shouldn't paint with too broad of a brush, as you've laid out. Not all private equity companies operate the same way.
1: No, and in all those scenarios that you just detailed, you could probably find a similar scenario in a publicly traded where um, a slash and burn CEO comes in, and his or her incentives are financially tied to you know EBITDA or margin expansion. You know, yeah. anybody remember Sunbeam and Al Dunlap? Uh, Chainsaw
0: and, Al. He was yeah. a disciple of Jack Welch. Yeah, yeah.
1: So I mean, so you can, you can have it in that that world too. So I I think yeah. uh, again, you know, people are savvy buyers. They they know when the the car is being held together by duct tape, and you know there's bondo in the the door panel to, to the, the accident that happened. <laughs> right.
0: right. Um, so, how does lean tie in then to this value creation model? Like How how does Kotala Holdings? How do you use lean with the companies you've acquired to create value, to improve okay. the business, to position it for a better sale. So my first
1: real introduction into the private equity world was in 2005, working for a turnaround consulting firm called Argo Consulting. And private equity, uh, again, here's the different flavors of private equity. Some private equity firms have an internal operations improvement group. Kind of think of it like a data business system office or a data production system office, and they're man chartered with uh, Working with these businesses that they buy to, to improve them. And sometimes, uh, depending on their size, they may not be able to afford that. So they outsource it to consulting firms. And that's what Argo did. So we worked with firms like AEA, which is a rather large PE firm, kind of along the spectrum, closer to the KKR model and the Blackstone model. And they're very interested in value creation as it related to operations improvement. So they've already narrowly defined value creation. Um, at least partnering with a firm like ours as being in the operations realm only, the four walls of a factory, and then extend that to supply chain. Uh, So we'd go in and and we do a lot of what you would expect, doing Kaizen to improve labor utilization, which meant a lot of times Kaizen to cut heads, which, you know, looking back on them, I wasn't always proud with how that was handled, but again, it's, private equity, it's like, um, you know, there wasn't a good sort of policy and, and sort of cultural stance internally around what do we do with people that are displaced with improvement activity, which made my job and our job even harder to convince people that Kaizen was, was a good thing. Right. So then you are plugging into what PE refers to as a value creation plan. So we have like a swim lane where it's operations, labor arbitrage, inventory improvements, uh, quality improvement, warranty expense and go down the, the items of the P&L as it relates to the operations responsibility. And we would be helping to accelerate all of those gains that were identified during diligence as an opportunity and making those opportunities uncovered during diligence a reality so that they're bankable. So that at exit, those are now things that we can count on as as savings in the business or cash flow improvements in the business. So did that for two years, uh, and then you know got to Danover and uh, did, you know push pause on the private equity. Involvement, other than you know, when Danaher was trying to buy businesses, they would oftentimes run up against other PE firms bidding for the companies. So then, after Danaher, I got involved with this Coltala Group. So the way it works in in our group is um, uh, our lean focused team and myself are the portfolio operations improvement people, and we are involved in the entire life cycle from diligence to creating the value creation plan to post acquisition integration and value creation activities and all the way up to exit, but we haven't exited yet. So we've um, aren't there. So we don't know what that will look like yet. So we identify during diligence, what the value creation opportunities are and they generally fall into three high level buckets you know, growth related activities that are going to drive organic growth and, and even inorganic. So acquisitions that you can make, Then uh, profit or or margin expansion opportunities, EBITDA. And then the third leg would be working capital or cash flow improvement types of of opportunities. And all of those opportunities are going to map back to tools or approaches that need to be leveraged inside the business system in order to make those things real. And uh, so lots of Kaizen events have to happen, lots of projects and so on. But then there's also just capabilities that need to be installed in the business in order for the business just to continually improve over time. Strategy deployment needs to be installed as a process and a discipline. Daily management needs to be installed as a process and a discipline in all the affected departments, not only just the four walls of the factory. So you're teaching the organization oftentimes a new way of running their business that's foreign to them. Not that they haven't solved problems, of course they have, but when introducing like structured problem solving and metrics and you know putting together an action plan to close a gap, it's like calculus sometimes to people. <laughs> yeah. So then we provide the support, we train in the tool, we facilitate, we push, we challenge, we set high expectations, but ultimately we're trying to affect a business results and then make that change real so that. The, the PL reflects the process improvement made. And, and in parallel, you've hopefully changed somebody's uh, thinking along the way, and you're teaching them how to lead their business in a way that would be congruent with how a lean leader would behave inside of a, a lean culture. Does it always happen to your you know, desired level of satisfaction? No. And I think in the PE space, you sort of have to pick your battles, too, where Maybe in a Danaher, you have this top down organization saying, Thou shalt do all of these things and they're non negotiable. As in the PE world, you're working with a founder who's reinvested into the business and is critical to make the strategy go. Uh, you have to sort of pick your battles and which mm-hmm. things to disagree with because you're riding that horse to the finish line five to seven years down the line.
0: Yeah. So, is there a decision point for the PE firm? of? Acquiring a company, are you acquiring 100% equity? Are you leaving a founder in place who still has some equity where you're trying to find alignment and growth and improvement together? How often does that person say, hey, that's my exit? You know, I've built this, it's time for me to retire, I'm going to sell it. How often do those things happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is a a really important part of the criteria of of the types of businesses we target to. So when you go into the situation, you don't know what the ownership situation is on the ground when you, when you, when you initiate contact with potential acquisition. So let's say it's a founder led business. He or she has grown this business over time. They've got their thumbprints on everything. Uh, They are the business in effect, if you will. And they are at a situation in their life and and usually it's like uh, they want to preserve their legacy. So they'll say things like, you know, I want the culture to be intact. I don't want people to be let go. So they have a lot of requirements in order to sell and they want to hear from the PE firm that they're going to honor those things. But they themselves are wanting to take chips off the table, meaning they want to sell their business and and live a different life than they've led for the prior decades where they've done work their ass off to get where they are. And, and that's a noble outcome. And a lot of founders choose that path. Uh, we as a PE firm, if if we're buying a business and uh, want to continue that relationship with somebody, it's great to have a founder that wants to reinvest and we call it taking a, another bite at the apple. So they get paid for the valuation of their business up until this point, and then they're invited to stay on. And oftentimes they they just remain the CEO and they're reinvesting a significant piece of of equity called rolling over equity into the new entity. So they have a significant enough share that their interests are aligned with the PE firm. So they want to embrace this lean business system thinking, this value creation roadmap, because the exit multiple they're going to get five to seven years down the line is nothing compared to you know this one they got now is nothing compared to the one five to seven years from now that could be. And we're talking about generational wealth at that point. <laughs> and that's, that's the carrot that keeps the founder. And we like that second situation better than the first one. And there's a third situation, which we've done and and haven't been too successful with. Um, and we just sort of problem solved this yesterday, actually, you know, kind of postmortem is is that founder takes the money off the table and then you think you can bring in a leadership team from the outside that's going to take this business to a new place. Now well, just imagine all the cultural challenges you're going to face. It's like outside team comes in, we know this industry inside and out. Well, the employees that remain are probably aligned to the prior leadership and then there's this sort of internal fractions that develop that you have to be mindful of. And at the end of the day, it's like, processes don't have uh, feelings people do and you have got to navigate people through that change management process and i think in private equity oftentimes that gets discounted as being a real thing when it's an absolutely real thing right. and it's the cause for why change doesn't happen
0: yeah and so you know for anyone who goes and looks at the uh, coltala holdings website it's just uh, coltala.com i'll link to it in the show notes you know you see Damon on the team listed as a managing director slash uh, Kotala enterprise system. So it sounds like that's your domain. That's your baby, if you will, no. to define, develop that kind of, again, thinking back to the other episode where you talked about how important it is to have your business system. It sounds like Kotala, you, you've developed that based on your past influences. And you know, how, how is that different, do you think, in a private equity kind of model?
1: Yeah, I, I think you have to be mindful that each one of these businesses that you are acquiring is different. So at a high level, it's like, does this company make something or are they a service business? So that's kind of like the first decision tree. And, and by, def, you know, by the answer to that question, it dictates which tools in CES apply or not. So you know, do we really need to talk about um, uh, setup reduction in a manufacturing context when we're talking about a service-oriented business that does heating, ventilation, air conditioning, as an example, right? So um, so differentiating, so there so there's a, a menu of tools available as the Coltala Enterprise System, but we're very thoughtful in which tools we apply in which business based on the nature of the business and maturity-wise and priority-wise, what we need to work on right now in order to affect the value creation needed in your one, year two, year three. So it's less of, we need to do all these things well, maybe kind of like sometimes in a corporate world where there's a business system, like we have to do it all well and none of it sort of be half, half-hearted. You're more precise and surgical about it in PE context.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned different tools, but then, you know, even a couple of minutes ago, you talked about within, Coltala, as you said, we problem-solved that. It sounds like a lot of this is problem-solving the business at a high level, right? Is it a revenue and growth challenge? Is it a, a cost opportunity, quality, customer service? Just to look at like what, what are the barriers, what are the causes of that business not being as successful as you think it could be?
1: Yeah, for sure. So you think about Coltala as a holding company, they make or sell nothing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, one could argue that you know they're non-value added. They probably wouldn't like that. But uh, <laughs> so, so you know, the way private equity works is they get a management fee, and you know, that's you know, it's, it's not significant. You're not going to retire off a of management fee. You retire off of the exit value of selling it. So when I joined these guys, they were they were they had a thirst for understanding how to use a lean business system to drive value creation. In the private equity space. And the reason they had this appetite is uh, they had 20 years of PE experience and they've watched sort of an evolution happen in the industry where just hundreds, thousands of new PE firms cropping up. Um, access to capital is not the problem in private equity. There's a lot of money out there waiting to be invested, sitting on the sidelines. But, but what they learned, which led them to this idea that CES is is meaningful is that uh, they couldn't control the outcome meaning the the results that they got at exit were a function of really the leadership teams that they were buying or the lack of leadership teams that they were buying so you had some really good ones at exit some really crappy ones and on average you hope that you had a better return than the stock market which you know looking back the last 20 years uh, one can make a case and say, Would we have been better served investing in Apple or or Danaher stock, Google stock, right? Did we really, for all that work that we did, was it worthwhile? So they want to get out in front of that and say, look, there are companies out there who have a repeatable business system model that have shown that they can drive shareholder value creation in a public space. Danaher, UTC, Honeywell, you know, go down the list of people that would attribute their success to their business system. Why can't that be replicated in PE, and why can't that be replicated in lower middle market PE? And, and even in PE, you can point to some really good examples, like Vista, private equity, who just buys software companies, has a, a business system and they playbook every time they buy a, a software company. And it's just like standard work. <laughs> right. And and the returns that they generate are far greater than their peers or their or their comparison. So I don't think that's rocket science. I think the challenge is convincing people who may have grown up in like the investment banking space, who've never worked in a a company with a business system, have never manufactured anything that these ideas can work in an area. And you're talking to like Harvard MBAs, Wharton MBAs who are really successful and have a lot of money in convincing that they may have to do things different. Right. So this whole be a humble leader, uh, you know it becomes challenging in a space where people have lots of dollars in their bank account right <laughs> thankfully like this this group that i'm I'm working with at Kotala they were just avid learners humble wanted to learn we we taught problem solving we taught strategy deployment they're participating on Kaizen events they're pushing the broom they're down on their fees they're scraping the floor they're doing everything that you know Larry Culp would say at dinner we need to do as leaders they're leading by example so they're drinking the kool-aid right and right and the culture then is is permeating the businesses that we buy because uh-huh. they see that in order to be successful here as a as a hold co a holding company, uh, we need to act this way. Which sure, is the
0: idea. So, if somebody listening is let's say looking for a new opportunity and they're they're scouting out different jobs to be an internal lean facilitator. Well, let's say they've been an operations manager or a plant manager. They're looking for a new opportunity. If somebody finds a, a company and it says in the description, private equity owned, it seems like there, there are certain key questions of, of, as you've already touched on, Damon, looking at like, well, what type of private equity company is it? And are are there other key questions that somebody should ask to sort of get beyond something that sounds good on the surface, like to to make Mm -hmm. sure they're going into a situation where if they share the values of, you know, uh, lean leadership, and like you said, not kaizening people out of jobs and like, what, what are some things people should look for, ask to make sure they're getting into a situation that, that meets their own purpose and values and way they would want to go about things.
1: Yeah. So let's say that this individual is, uh, has an appetite to learn through development and through participation and continuous improvement opportunities and and these kinds of things. So if you're going into a situation that's a PE held business, you want to understand on a scale of one to 10, how active the PE firm is in driving value creation inside of the businesses that they acquire. So I like to just keep it really simple, 10 to one, you know, If if Danaher were a 10 in terms of how involved they are in the companies that they own, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of off the charts. Berkshire Hathaway is a one. We buy you and just leave you alone. And we expect you to write a letter once a quarter. That's it. And and, we don't go to your reviews. We don't question your strategy and we invite you to Omaha to participate. (laughs) That's about it. So, so if, if you have an appetite to learn a lot through, Portfolio value creation opportunities, and there isn't a group that does that because they're very hands off. You're going to find yourself, and you're not even going to maybe even know at times that you're you are in a different ownership situation because it doesn't doesn't land down to your level of the business, right? So just understand how involved they are uh, is one, uh, and, and the the fund versus long holding period is a is a second important question. So if if you're coming into a business, my question would be, where are you at in the cycle? So, are you three years in on a five-year fund? Because then you know you got two years, and the amount of you know when you when you go to somebody with a two years left on an investment and say, "Hey, Mark, you know I need two million dollars of capex to uh, buy a new piece of equipment to improve our on-time delivery." you're thinking about the exit multiple and you're going to be like, "Uh, can you hold it together for another? (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah, We don't seem to have any money for new equipment, right? So you may be let down when you are coming at this from a long-term perspective and they're viewing this as I need to exit and maximize return, right? So where are they at in the cycle is is another one. Uh, And then the third one, I would say, help me understand what is the value creation model? What is the standard work you use to to drive improvement in the businesses that you own? And it kind of relates to question number one. So if if they are hands-on, question number two is, well, walk me through the methodology you use to be hands-on. And if it's only operations-focused, meaning it's labor takeout, Right, run away, you know, that, those you can start to see like how comprehensive it is to know are they really just focused on cost and cost takeout on short term, or are they more mission and margin and create a culture that's sustainable when we exit this business and so on.
0: Right. Um, last time, um, you know, we had a really good discussion. You, you, uh, you know, shared some thoughts and, you know, strongly held opinions and views that, you know, lean people need to better understand uh, financial statements and the business metrics and drivers of, you know, why, why are we doing things? Um,
1: And I put myself in a group too, by the way. Sure.
0: (laughs) And I I could understand that all better, even when it comes to hospitals and their financial statements, but um, is, is there, is there more need for that financial savvy if you're going to be working for a private equity owned company, or at least willingness to develop that?
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, it is probably that on steroids because, you know, and think about where these people are coming from, from a background career background standpoint, they were analysts, they were brokers, they were investment bankers, they were, uh, you know, PE summer interns where they're looking at spreadsheets and doing, doing pro forma models and things like that. So, so they are in the details of the P&L and a lot of the questions are very uh, financial-oriented questions where it's like, hey, talk to me about this variance here or talk to me about why margin is eroding on this product line. Um, not unlike what you would expect in a well-run company, but it's there's more of a pronounced focus on that than... And oh, by the way, talk to me about the process you're improving that leads to that outcome. That part of the conversation doesn't happen as much as I'd like it to in private equity, right? So so there is sort of a you know, kind of the 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 needle pegs more to the financial side than the process and financial side. There isn't an equal mix all the time. So it becomes even more important to understand that stuff if you're working as a CI leader in a PE health business. If you want to make friends with the, the PE firm. You know, be conversant in those sorts of topics and tie those topics to your continuous improvement priorities, so that people can see that you're aligned with their investment interests. Sure.
0: And so, you know, I, I would invite people. You know, I think it's really interesting to look at the uh, Tala Holdings website. At least, you know, listed right now, three very different companies on the surface: uh, Choice Health at Home, you know, home health, hospice, things like that. Walker Air Plumbing and Electric um, in the DFW area, and then uh, myfitnessstore.com. and you know you, you can go and it's spelled out on the website, um, you know, in, investment criteria, and, and I think it's in, interesting also, um, you know, to look through and say what well, you know values, what 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 are the values, what what what, what do you stand for, and you know, I imagine for anybody looking at any PE firm, you know, there's always that question to ask. How does that language really translate into reality?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, I did a lot of diligence before I, I signed on to work with Coltala And the two founders, uh, Edward Crawford and Ralph Manning, those values you see on that page are what they espouse and believe and ooze every day and in their interactions with people, not only in their personal lives, but in the business world. Um, so their interests, their values were aligned and congruent with mine. And you know, if I were to add a fourth question, I know I probably shouldn't go back and rephrase my answer. It's like, understand what the values are for the PE firm. And, and I think you'd be hard pressed to, when you look at a lot of these PE firms, they actually don't articulate what those things are because they don't think of their, their company, maybe as having a culture of values that are important in terms of how it drives the decision-making. So, uh, so that's, you know, that's a, uh, a key piece for me, why what attracted me to the business. And then each and every day you get to demonstrate whether or not those things are meaningful to you and the decisions that you take and more importantly, how you act and behave.
0: So. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting just looking through this list. I mean, there are some that every firm might claim, like, you know, be, you know being data driven, like who, yeah. who, who these days wouldn't say um, they're data driven, but then you see values here around, blameless culture um, humility um, you know lo- high levels of integrity and transparency and those are things that might not be the values of every business leader or, or every PE firm so it's just it's interesting to see just cherry picking from you know a list of articulated values there it's really interesting to see
1: yeah uh, and it you know it's and it's not lip service too like we start every meeting with one of those values and how we either lived or maybe didn't live that value and how we could get better the next time. So there's like this constant reinforcement of the message inside of the work that you do that otherwise just becomes words on a wall or on a website, at least in this case. So uh, I think all values are aspirational. It's like, these are standards we try to aspire to hit. And on some days you'll be on your best behavior and on others, but on balance, you hope that more days than not, the organization lives what it says is, our, is important, and it's up to leadership to hold people accountable to the standard and hold themselves personally responsible to adhere to the standard, more importantly. Right.
0: Yep. Those PDSA cycles of life or of business, of identifying, if a gap is identified, the difference between ideal and where we are, let's acknowledge that. Let's understand that better. Let's move forward in ways that close that gap.
1: For sure. Yeah. And that that takes humility when you have to admit that maybe you had done something wrong in that example. Yeah.
0: Well makes me think of a different podcast series. I do my favorite mistake. I'll hold up my mug here of, you know, again, like, hey, we're all human, we all make mistakes, but um learning from those mistakes or those gaps or or short moments where we fall short. Um, you know, I think is really, really key.
1: I think I I can make an eight hour episode out of that.
0: you no you're you know, i was no you're not overstaying your welcome but we could do an episode of that sometime too um because I, I do appreciate when people um you know it's this combination of um you know it, it takes strength and humility to to be willing to talk about um, mistakes or gaps and i always appreciate that when when we can have conversations like that
1: yeah larry always said uh, larry cult always said uh, humble but confident you know, the right balance of humility and confidence. So it's not like humility isn't being deferential and being meek and sort of a wallflower. Uh, it's I'm also confident in what I believe in, uh, but I'm not, you know, spiking the football on the one yard line.
0: <laughs> right. And um, yeah, there's this balance. Uh, it would seem of, let's say, for example, I have the confidence to try a new idea, but I have the humility to realize I might be wrong.
1: Like, yeah. Yeah,
0: exactly. So um, one other thing I want to talk about here today, you know, and and thank you, Damon, for giving us an overview of, you know, some examples of different ownership models, publicly held companies, privately held companies like Kinexis. I'm wearing their shirt today, you know, um, and then private equity owned companies. Um, I think one really interesting model um, is when you have employee owned companies and different models for that. And when you talk about the ownership works initiative, it seems like it's sort of in that category and maybe there's, there's some overlap in different dimensions here, but, but tell us about the ownership works initiative and, and what that means in terms of company culture and employee partnership.
1: Yeah. Um, so it's, it's not an ESOP uh, employee stock owned company where, you know, 100 percent of the the equity in the business is owned by the employees and there's only you know, a certain amount available and that kind of thing. So it's not that. So, so I think so ownership works. It's a nonprofit organization and their their charter or their their mandate or their aspiration, if you will, is uh, to engage the workforce inside of these companies, you have to to make them feel like there's skin in the game. There's an ownership piece into uh, the company, right? So you think about, uh, you know, let's say it's your business and every morning you wake up, Mark, and, and of course you're motivated because you know that every activity that you engage in and every extra hour, a minute of the day that you put in will, will come back to you in some sort of return, which, you know, you're going to be the benefactor of the financial. So, so then those, those same founders get frustrated when they can't unlock that same level of engagement inside of people. And it's the answer. I tell those people, it's like, it's your company. They're never going to get as motivated and excited about something they, they don't own. You're, you know, you're, you're treating them like employees, not, not owners. That level of commitment will never be what you want it to be. So I think this ownership works as an attempt to align the incentives with the workforce so that there is something in it for them to want to engage in continuous improvement. So KKR in particular, which is one of the PE firms that have signed on to Ownership Works, has uh, designed the acquisitions to set aside a pool of equity for the employees of the businesses that they're acquiring, and and it's and it's uh, and it's not insignificant either. So you can actually go through and and watch some of the videos. Uh, that where they filmed town hall meetings for like CHI overhead doors, which was one of their businesses that they just exited. And when Pete Stavros, who leads the KKR Industrials platform, is announcing the average paycheck that all these employees are getting, you see mouths literally like gaping open and falling on the floor, not realizing like how much value creation that they've realized uh, through their Full-scale adoption, engagement, and participation in, in all the value creation priorities that they've identified over the, the period that they own that business, and it's an engaged workforce because they're making decisions like owners make decisions. Because you know, hey, if if I could save some money here, that's more money that's going. So they they connect the activity to the reward, and, and they try to draw in the timing of that as as much as possible, and then just remind people at these monthly town halls like. You know, here's what your investments worth. Here's what your investments worth. What your investments worth. Uh, so that that creates the the uh, engagement. So so the initiative ownership works is is a recognition in, in our U.S. society that maybe capitalism hasn't benefited at all. And you know, if you look at average CEO pay versus you know the hourly workforce or mm-hmm. you know, wage, it's like it's you know it's a
0: growing gap. Yeah, um,
1: nothing but separate so this is an attempt to try to uh rectify some of that not the only answer obviously but um it's an attempt to that and it's a pledge where not only pe firms but ever publicly or held corporations could sign on to and and commit to make equity ownership part of how they engage their workforce um by making them shareholders
0: yeah so, i mean how often have we heard the phrase uh We want employees to think like owners. Like, well, let's not make that a theoretical exercise. (laughs) Yeah, Um, pay me like an owner. (laughs) uh, Well, and so when when you talk about setting aside that pool or, you know, the the website here, ownershipworks.org, I encourage people to check it out. Um, One of the case studies featured on the front page, uh, I'm going to go watch the video after we're done here. It's about Ingersoll Rand. Like, that's a pretty old guard. Like, there's a long history. Like, you know, too, right? and of what with lean
1: of also doing lean, too,
0: by yeah. the way. Yeah. And, you know, it says here, um, you know, the company made all 16,000 of its employees, owner of the company. So is that initial equity pool? Um, I don't know if gift is the right word. Is it given? To the employees as part of their compensation, then so maybe gifts is the right word. Yeah, I
1: I don't know the the internal strings attached, um, whether or not there's a vesting period. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there was. uh, And then and then further, I think Ingersoll Rand in that example even did another um, uh, grant of of equity down the road after the initial one uh, as well. And again, I don't know. Every organization is different, whether or not they Vest one hundred percent at at allocation, or there's a vesting period over three years or five years,
0: whatever it is. But mm-hmm. yeah, but you know, as the website here, um, you know, points to the need or the opportunity building wealth uh, for all um, within the company, and you know, some of the goals here, um, you know, it talks about you know the power of shared ownership. <clears throat> excuse me, uh, creating economic opportunity. Uh, advancing racial equity, so th- there's that idea of wealth creation for all, of of going yeah. across all dimensions um, of uh, society and an employee base, and then you know enhancing employee engagement, right? So a lot of this does sound very similar to what we might describe as lean or concepts of respect for people and and that engagement piece, and you know a culture where there's there's alignment where we're part of the same team, as opposed to like somebody mentioned. Um, the movie Office Space earlier, like there's a famous scene there where you know, Peter Gibbons is telling the consultants, um you know, basically like, well, you know, why should I put in any extra effort because I don't make any more money i'm I'm paraphrasing, but you know he says, you know basically, it's not that I'm lazy. It's a matter of motivation or something like that. yeah, we can uh, create that alignment um where when a company has an exit, everybody gets a windfall from that if they've contributed to the improvements and the value creation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's just two, there's a lot of misunderstandings about the economy. So like the stock market is not the economy. Mm-hmm. So, and when people say, you know, geez, you should be really happy because the stock is doing well or the stock market's doing well, only like 58% of the United States owns a share of stock in a company. Mm. Wow. So so when we talk about that, we're really talking about, you know, like little over half the company that's in that position and half that isn't. So that racial uh, equity piece, you know, you won't solve all that equation, but it helps to. And then, and you can even take that 58% and go, well, uh, what's the 80-20 of that? And of all the shares held, you know, what's the what's the number of people that own the most stock? It's, you know, it's probably not you and I, right? It's Warren Buffett and, and others, you know, that. the the ownership so so this is again to close the 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 42% gap on the other side ownership works helps helps with that and aligns those those interests and creates a an avenue for wealth creation beyond just you know the the annual merit increase or bonus if you will
0: yeah yeah it's it's i think it's exciting to see um leaders and organizations that um sort of, you know, uh, bucking some past trends and, you know, moving things in this direction. I mean, uh, I, I think of, let's say, you know, Bob Emiliani and others who who, who describe Lean, um, I think Bob in, t- in particular, uh, describes this as progressive management. And that that word progressive can be a loaded term and don't mean for it to be political, but progressive in terms of like, you know, moving forward, um, doing things differently based on some some values that, that go beyond just... Um, the bottom line or the wealth of a few. I, I, I think that's interesting as a way of, you know, um, how do we prevent people from giving up on capitalism? As you raised yeah. raise the point. Capitalism has, uh, has um, you know, there, there, there are criticisms, but let, let's not let things get to a point where uh, people are willing to throw that aside. And I say that as an MBA and somebody who's started a company and I would call myself a capitalist, but, you um, you know, I, I think you raised, you know, kind of the interesting phrase there earlier of conscious capital. You yeah. know, how do we have mission and margin?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the key. And you know, I think it's it's one of the uh it's one of the, the secrets to unlocking real employee engagement. So, you know, you go to most organization, that is, if not the number one topic, it's in the top three. Like how do we improve employee engagement and and I always turn back on them and 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 talk about you know, employee engagement is really a function of employee equity, you know, meaning you know, being treated fairly. So when not equity in the, the form of ownership, but just actually right. how you treat people, right. equity when you, with the ball. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you walk into an organization, and the first thing you notice in the parking lot is there's a reserved space for the president and his or her direct reports. Uh, that is a cut against being equitable, and when you know the hourly workforce has had their pay frozen for years, yet we've seen executive compensation gone up. You know, over that same period of time, is that equitable? And are we surprised at why people aren't engaged in totality because they feel like they're being treated differently than you know maybe the select few that all the spoils go to? So uh, it, it's hard to have, talk about engagement without also having a very frank, open and candid conversation about compensation and reward and performance and all that kind of stuff. And it, it seems to be the conversation that most companies just don't want to have because it requires financial changes to be made. <laughs> and somebody, somebody gives up something to give something, which we all, we all don't want to do, right? The, the not in my backyard sort of
0: mindset. Right. But if we're creating value, it's it's no longer a zero sum game. Yeah. but we can all benefit from.
1: And it's a leap of faith. Yeah, and I think you know more of these companies like Ingersoll Rand and CHI where we see that the model works, the less of a leap of faith people will could, will construe it as. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. Well, Damon, I'm, I'm I'm glad you're willing to have, you know, the conversation uh, about um, these topics and you know different way, different models, different ways of uh, engaging and compensating people. So thank you for bringing the ownership works initiative to my attention. i'm I'm glad we were able to explore that today um you know in in addition to everything you've shared, you know uh, very helpful, very educational when it comes to uh, private equity and connections to lean. So Damon, really appreciate you being here uh, again.
1: My pleasure, Mark. So it's always a joy.
0: Yeah. so it's been uh, again, Damon Baker, uh, you can find uh, Koltala Holdings at Koltala. Uh, oh gosh, I lost it. Uh, my most recent mistake, not my Coltala.com. Uh, I don't know why I was thinking .org. It's uh, ownershipworks.org. That's where I got um, those things confused. And again, you can also learn more at leanfocus.com. Damon Baker uh, we will do this again sometime, maybe not again as soon, but certainly look forward to it. And thank you for everything you shared today. All right.
1: Thanks, Mark. Take care.
0: You too.